And if you all would open your Bibles to the book of Acts, we are in chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 14. Now, I originally intended to preach the rest of chapter 1 to, to verse 26, and it's really all, it's really all one message. So I'm going to, as, but as I was going through this, and as I got about halfway through the sermon, and I realized that I was probably about a half hour long, and I figured that since we had a pretty full service, it really wouldn't have been pretty wise for me to preach an hour-long sermon on this. So what I'm doing is something I haven't done before. I'm actually going to break this sermon up, and I'm going to do a, a, a two-part sermon. So we're going to look at the first part of it this week, and then, Lord willing, next week we will look at the, the second part. But it's really all one section. And just to kind of give some background where we are, this is the third sermon in the book of Acts. And the first thing we saw when we looked at the book of Acts, is we saw that Acts, like all Scripture, is about Jesus. Jesus is the main character. Jesus is the hero in the book of Acts. Jesus drives the book. So Luke, in his first book, his first book, which is the Gospel, tells us about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. Well, this book, the book of Acts, is all about Jesus, what Jesus continues to do and teach throughout the church age. And unlike in the Gospels, Jesus is not physically with us. He's not physically here, present with the church. Jesus has ascended into heaven. That's what we looked at in our last uh, sermon on this. He's not physically here. He's physically with the Father. He's physically in heaven. He's interceding for us. He's preparing a place for us in heaven. But before he left, Jesus made a promise. He had given his people a promise that he would not leave them alone, but he would actually send to them his Holy Spirit. And through his Holy Spirit, Jesus is with them. Jesus would continue to teach them, continue to direct them through his Holy Spirit. In verse 8, Jesus tells his disciples, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And as we saw in the, in the last sermon, because of the Holy Spirit, because we now have the Holy Spirit, every single one of us, if we are Christian, every single one of us has direct immediate and continuous personal access to Jesus himself. Just think about this. Every one of us has direct, continuous, personal access to Jesus himself. This is something that even the closest disciples didn't have during Jesus' earthly ministry, or even after the resurrection. Remember during Jesus' earthly ministry, he would, wasn't with his apostles continuously. He would go off to pray. Uh, even after the resurrection, he would suddenly appear and depart. But we need to realize that we now, we now have this continuous access. We are more privileged than even Peter, James, or John because of this access. Access that they didn't have until they received the Holy Spirit. But the text we're looking at this morning and next week happens during a unique period in time. This is a unique 10-day period. And during this period, Jesus' ascension, between his ascension and between Pentecost... Jesus is, this before the, before the Holy Spirit is poured out on his church, this is a period of waiting. This is a time of waiting. And in this passage, we see a picture of faithfulness. The church is faithless as they're waiting for God. So Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. You know the word of the Lord. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room, where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these 
with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. And Lord, I pray for your spirit to be with us because we know we need your spirit to understand this word. I need your spirit to preach this word accurately. And I pray, Lord, that you will speak to us, that, Lord, you will use this time to change each one of us. Each one of us will become more like Christ and he will be seen today and he will be pleased and he will be glorified. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, all of us, all of us in one way or another, we are in a period of waiting. And as we heard with the kids, we don't like waiting. We don't like waiting. Now, we're not waiting for the same thing as the, the apostles were in this passage. As we hear, they were waiting specifically for the Holy Spirit. And what this represents, waiting for the Holy Spirit, this represents the next event on the redemptive timeline. We talked a little bit about this in Sunday school. And the first hymn that we sung, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery, it talks about this unveiling of the mystery of the redemption. Uh, things, events on a redemptive timeline. People didn't know the same things. They weren't waiting for the same things. See, for us, we're not waiting for Pentecost. That's past. We now have the Holy Spirit. But each one of us is waiting. God's people have always been waiting. Throughout the Old Testament, God's people were waiting. They were waiting for the Messiah. They were waiting for the coming of the one who was going to free them from their sins, who was going to solve this problem that was caused by Adam. During the Gospel, during the Gospel, the apostles, they were waiting. They were waiting for the coming of the kingdom. The, the Messiah was here. They wanted to see it fullness, its fullness and its consummation. In this passage, we see the disciples, they are waiting for the Holy Spirit to be poured out on them. During each period of redemptive history, there is still a waiting. So what are we waiting for? What are we waiting for in this moment? Where, what is our moment on this redemptive timeline? Well, redemption was accomplished on the cross. That's what we celebrate today. That is the, the focal point of redemptive history is the cross. It was on the cross where Jesus, the, the sinless Son of God, took upon himself the guilt of the sins of his people. And on the cross, that guilt was, of those sins was, was fully and perfectly punished in Jesus. And because of Jesus' work on the cross, this, this barrier that exists between us and God, this barrier has been removed because of the work on the cross. And this redemption that was accomplished on the cross, it was confirmed by Jesus' resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is the, the physical, is the tangible proof, is the proof that, this, that God accepted Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. And then next came the ascension. And the ascension is where Jesus goes up to be with God the Father, his right hand, to, to intercede for the church. And it's where he gives his Holy Spirit to empower the church, to be his witnesses, and to apply redemption to God's elect. And this is where we are. After Pentecost, when the, when the Holy Spirit is poured out, this is where we are now. But this is not the end of redemptive history. See, redemption has been accomplished on the cross, and we rightfully celebrate that. And it's been confirmed with the resurrection, again, which we rightfully celebrate. Every Lord's Day, we celebrate the resurrection. And with the ascension and with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, redemption is now being applied. It is being applied, and this is the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. And this application, this work of the Holy Spirit, of, of applying our redemption, this has two parts. And the first part is when the Holy Spirit, when, when, when it comes to unbelievers, where, where he imparts new life to unbelievers, bringing them from a, from a state of death 
to light, from the, from the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God. This is to use a vernacular. This is when people get saved. People get saved. And we as the church and as, as individual believers, think about it. We have the privilege. We have the privilege of being the instruments used by the Holy Spirit through our witness, through the, the proclamation of the gospel, to be the instrument that the Holy Spirit uses to impart new life in Christ on those who are spiritually dead. We just saw that with the, with the Gideons handing out Bibles. That is the, they are the instruments bringing that word to people, and they are being, the Holy Spirit does the work, but we are being used by the Holy Spirit as his instruments. But this is only the first part. This is the only the first part of the application of redemption. There's a second part. And the second part of the application of redemption is the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers, in those who already knew creations in Christ. And what it is, it is conforming them to be more and more like Christ, more and more in the image of Christ, making us more like Jesus, morally perfecting us. See, the first work of the Holy Spirit, the first work of this application is regeneration, giving new life. The second work of this application is sanctification, making us more like Christ. And this process will go on for the rest of our lives, and it will finally end in the consummation of our redemption, which is glorification. And this is what we wait for. You see, my friends, each one of us, each one of us is a work in progress. Each one of us is waiting, waiting to be further sanctified. Some are, are, not, are waiting to be regenerated. They don't even know they're waiting. We are waiting for loved ones to be regenerated, to come to Christ. And all of the things that we wait for in this life, all the, all the smaller things, they really fall into this category of waiting for that final consummation. Basically, bringing, coming to heaven, to what we were, were, were meant to be. So no matter what you're waiting for, you could be waiting for a job, you could be waiting for a spouse, waiting for a loved one to be saved, waiting for God to act in a mighty way in your lives, waiting for revival, which we pray for, waiting for him to use us. Some of us are sick, some of us are dealing with some, some significant pain, waiting for him to heal us. Waiting, him to, waiting for him to put to death a, a persistent sin that continues to, to plague us. My friends, each one is, of us is waiting for something. And we're waiting for something that only God can do. Something that will only be completed when we are in glorification. But we are waiting for this. And it is difficult. And the question for us is, what do we do? What do we do while we are waiting? Well, today's passage gives us an example of what to do. It provides for us principles of what to do, principles that we can follow. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at only three. Like I said, there were six in this whole passage that I was looking at, but we're only going to look at three this morning. Lord willing, we'll look at the other uh, three next week. But let's, let's dive into this. What do we see in this passage about waiting? Well, the first principle we see is that the apostles, the disciples, were obedient. They were obedient while they were waiting. See, what was the, the, the last command that Jesus gave them prior to his ascension? Well, we see this in, in verse 4. Says, While they were staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait. And what are they to wait for? They are to wait for the Holy Spirit. They are to wait for Pentecost, which we'll see in chapter 2. So in verse 12, we see this obedience. It says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, about a Sabbath day, journeys away. So they were outside the city. This is where the, this is where the ascension took place, on, on the mount called Olivet, the Mount of Olives. And after this, they obeyed Jesus. They returned to Jerusalem. The text tells us that, the, that, that uh, they were near Jerusalem, but the, Jerusalem was a Sabbath day journey away. So what this means is on a Sabbath, they couldn't travel as far as they could on a normal day. 
Now, going through the text, I'm not going to work through it, but this distance is about a half mile to three quarters. So it's just close, but they go back to Jerusalem. Verse 13 tells us they enter the, the upper room. Now, this is most likely the same room. We, we've heard the upper room before. As a matter of fact, we're going to celebrate something that happened in the upper room. This is where the disciples celebrated the Last Supper with Jesus. Now, we need to remember the disciples were not from Jerusalem. This was not their home. Their home was Galilee. They were pilgrims. Remember, they came into the city as pilgrims to, to celebrate the Passover with Jesus. They came during Jesus' triumphal entry. Now, they've been there now for over 40 days. And it, and it would have been natural for them. It would have been easier for them to go home, to go home to their people. They could be with their, their family, with their, their friends, their support system. This would have been a much more comfortable place for them to be to wait for the Holy Spirit. But Jesus tells them, Jesus explicitly tells them not to go home, not to depart from Jerusalem, but they are to wait in Jerusalem. And they are obedient. They are obedient while they are waiting. So they didn't know everything. Jesus doesn't, didn't reveal everything he was going to do to them, what he was planning. And, and, and everything that he did, it didn't make sense to them. But what they did know, this command, they were to go to Jerusalem and wait. And this they did. This they knew. This they obeyed. They were obedient. And this is an important principle for us while we're waiting for the Lord. So whatever it is, if it's healing or, or answered prayer or, or sanctification or relationships or employment or, or, or opportunities to serve God, whatever we're waiting for, there is going to be a temptation for us to try to force it, a temptation for us to, to short-circuit the process. There will be a temptation for us to follow our own instincts. I think this is better. Our own intuition to speed up this, this waiting. Now, these instincts are not necessarily bad unless, unless they violate God's commands. See, oftentimes God's commands to us do not make sense to us. I mean, think about the, the apostles. What are they thinking? Why stay in Jerusalem? Why, why stay? We, we don't understand why, why God would give us this command. It doesn't make sense to us. We think that, that we don't have to listen if it doesn't make sense. We, we want to understand everything God's doing. And if it doesn't make sense to us, we say, well, I guess I don't have to understand. I, I, don't, I don't have to obey. But this is not the case, right? Wouldn't it make more sense for them to go home to their jobs, their friends? Wouldn't that be a better way for them to spread the message? That's what they could have been thinking. They could have rationalized it. But they were obedient. And my friends, we are so great at it, aren't we? We're so great at rationalizing our, our disobedience. For example... Why would God want me to stay in this unfulfilling marriage? Right? It would be certainly better for me. It would be certainly better for my wife or my, my husband if we were apart because we're, we're always arguing. It would be better for our children because we're always arguing. Wouldn't God want us to be all we can be? And I can't be all I can be with this other person. So we should go our separate ways. Again, this is disobedient to God's express command that marriage is a lifelong commitment, a lifelong union between one man and one woman. And likewise, there, there are temptations to, to disobey all kinds of other biblical commands. Commands that don't make sense to our, to our carnal mind. It's like, how about stretching the truth? I'll get in trouble if I tell the truth. But if I just kind of make a little lie, I can get off the hook on something. It's real easy for us to do. Except for God said, thou shall not lie. Thou shall not lie. How about fudging on my taxes? I don't need to, to report the side income that I got. I mean, everyone does it. Why should I give it to the, to the government? They're just going to waste it. I might as well keep it to myself. Thou shalt not steal. How about withholding with our tithes and offerings? Robbing God. We can, we can rationalize. You know, you know I, I, I can't make ends meet. You know, I, I've got all these extra expenses, so I've got to cut what I give to God. Again, we're robbing God. 
See, our first step when waiting for God is to obey what he's already told us. In fact, so many people, so many people say, why doesn't God speak to me? Why, why, why don't I have feelings like the Holy Spirit is, is, is leading me? Why don't I have a rich prayer life? Why don't I have rich theological insights? When I read the Bible, it makes no sense to me. Well, more often than not, what happens, this happens because we refuse to obey what he's already made clear to us. See, we're not going to get further instruction if we ignore what he has already given to us. The best way to have this intimacy with God is to obey what he's already showed us. So this is our first principle. The second principle is that they stayed together. They worshipped together. And we see this in verses 13 and 14. It names the 11 remaining apostles. And it gives a statement that with one accord, they were all together. My friends, there is power in unity. There is safety in unity. And sadly, we live in a culture that, that, that overvalues independence and individuality and, and really despises unity. Right? Nobody's going to tell me what to do. Nobody, I, I do my own thing. I'm my own master. I'm not going to go in. There are a whole bunch of sheep in those churches. And they're even professing Christians. Press, I, I just heard of one today who, 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 or, or this week, a, a person who, who studies theology, but he doesn't go to any church. They don't want to be part of the church. They're all hypocrites. They want to be alone, wolf Christians. You know, all I need is my Bible. It's just, just me and Jesus. I don't need the church. We don't need other believers. I don't need fellowship. My friends, nothing can be further from the truth. Not only do they need it, but this attitude is arrogant, it's foolish, and it is disobedient. It is sinful. We need each other. We need the accountability. We need the encouragement from other believers. See, God has not made us independent. God has made us interdependent. See, no single Christian, no single one of us has all the gifts necessary to be self-sufficient. See, one area where I am weak, another Christian is strong to complementary, and vice versa. Regular fellowship with other believers, first and foremost, what we're doing today on the Lord's Day, but also in Bible studies and Sunday schools and prayer meetings and potlucks. All of these things are essential in our growth in the Christian life. And if we ignore them, we ignore them to our peril. Even if you're home sitting alone reading theology books, you're not going to grow. Because real Christian growth comes not from learning only about God, but it comes from spending time with God and spending time with God's people. And, and, and I really believe that the church was, was severely weakened during, the, during COVID when so many Christians stayed away from worship. And I heard that there were some churches that didn't meet for years, years without meeting in person. Now, the live stream is great. I'm glad that we have a live stream. I'm glad that people who are traveling can, can worship with us and people who are homesick and, and people in other states can come worship with us. But the live stream is not worship. It is not the same as worship and fellowship. You don't have that same connection. And regular and consistent worship keeps us obedient and keeps us faithful to the Lord while we are waiting for him. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, it commands us, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. We can only do that if we are together, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging. We cannot do that unless we are together. My friends, there are real, there are tangible benefits, real and tangible graces that are given to us as we worship together, that we cannot experience if we are not here. There's a real grace that we experience in the baptism of Clara. There's real grace as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Those are things that are, we cannot do if we are not here. We are not here. 
And these things strengthen us. These things, these things comfort us. These things enable us really to, to serve in this fallen world, to serve the Lord in this fallen world. And the Lord has given us also the Sabbath day that we have now. This Sabbath day, one day in seven. One day in seven as a gift. And he has given us the entire day. The entire day when we are set free from our normal cares, our normal concerns, our normal amusements from this fallen world. And we are able to focus on him. Focus on him. Experience him. Enjoy him. Enjoy his people for the entire day. And my question is, do you take advantage of this gift? Do you take advantage of this gift that is given to us every seven days? What are we squandering? Do we best to give the Lord an hour on a Sunday morning and then we, then we rush back to do like what we do every other day of the week? Pursue our worldly pursuits? No different than it was on any of the other six days. Regular and consistent fellowship with other believers. This is the second principle we see in this passage. And this is what we are to do while we are waiting for the Lord. The final principle we see in this passage uh, that we'll be looking at this morning is that while we're waiting for God, we must be in prayer. Must be in prayer. And the importance of prayer really cannot be overemphasized. And we see this in verse 14. It said, All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. They were all in prayer. All in prayer. And it wasn't just the the leaders. It was not, not, not the apostles. But it was all of them. It was the men. It was the women. It was Mary, the mother of Jesus. It was Jesus' own brothers. They were all devoting themselves to prayer. And notice that it says they were devoting themselves. This is not a quick, casual prayer you give before a meal. You know, God blesses this food to our body. No. This, this prayer was not the formality. It was not a meaningless tradition that we often see in some public events and even in, in many churches. It, it, it wasn't even like many of our prayer meetings. We'll spend 45 minutes sharing prayer requests and talking and, and only five minutes pray, praying. Now, prayer was their focus. Prayer was their life. Prayer was work. It it was hard work. It was dedicated work. It was devoted work. And my friends, prayer is, is something of an enigma for us. It's an enigma because prayer is both simultaneously really the easiest thing we can do as well as the hardest thing we can do. Hardest thing we will ever do. See, it's the easiest thing because prayer at its basic level is simply asking. It's simply requesting. It's simply begging God to do something that we cannot do ourselves. Something that he alone can do. Nothing should be easier. It's simply asking. But to get to this point, to get to this point where we, where we truly pray, there must be desperation. We must, we must first give up any hope that we have in ourselves to accomplish the thing for which we're praying. There must be an acknowledgement that we are helpless in the situation. There must be an acknowledgement that there is no plan B. I don't have anything in my back pocket. I am lost. We're not praying until we, until we realize, like in, in the hymn, Rock of Ages. I love this line in Rock of Ages. It's the third verse. It says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Do we realize nothing? There's nothing I have. It says, naked come to thee for dress, helpless look for thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Do we realize that unless he washes us, we will die? We have no plan B. There is no hope. We have to come. That's what prayer, real prayer is, coming to God in that desperation. The problem is we don't like desperation. We don't want to be desperate. We want to be in control. We don't even want to admit that we are that desperate. My friends, this is the truth. This is the reality 
The reality that we refuse to see is that we are desperate. We, if we honestly looked at our situation just for a second, we would realize just how completely helpless we are, our plans, our, our abilities are in the face of this fallen world, in the face of the problems that we have. And that's why we're so anxious. You wonder why we are such an anxious people? It's because we realize subconsciously that we have no control. But we think we do. We delude ourselves. We refuse to admit it. We refuse to actually go to the one who is in control and, try, and, and continue to, to live this lie, this lie that I've got everything in control. We close our eyes to reality. We tell ourselves, I'm the master of my universe. I'm the master of my fate. Rather than that, I am totally dependent on God every single moment of the day, every nanosecond as we say, I need you, Lord. We rarely really pray because we never reach this point of desperation. And we never, at least in our mind, we never relinquish this, this control of the situation. We never give it to God to handle. We always hold back. We always, we always say, say, God, bless this situation. But we already want to know what we want to do. We say, God, bless what I already want to do. We ask God for his wisdom, all the while planning to do what we want to do all along. Never intending to yield to God for his wisdom. But there's also another reason. There's also another reason why prayer is so difficult for us, and, and few of us do it effectively. Prayer not only requires a desperation in ourselves that we, that we vehemently deny, prayer also requires a complete and a total trust in the sovereignty and goodness of God. And if we're honest, if we're honest, we really don't have that trust. We really don't have that faith that we can completely give it all to God. We pray that we want will God's will, but do we really trust God's will for our lives? Don't we more often pray that our will be done rather than God's will be done? Don't we say, Lord, I want your will be done, but I want your will to be what my will is. I want him to be the same. I do it to, I'm, I'm talking to myself as much as anyone else. And what if it's not God's will to give you that great job that you so desperately want? What if it's not God's will to give you that relationship that seems so, so right for you? What if it's not God's will that you be healed of this illness that, that you desperately want to be free of, that is distracting you and causing you so much misery? Do we really trust, do we truly trust that God's will is best? Or do we insist on our, our own weak, ignorant, sinful will be done? Really, are we any different than the, the, the prosperity gospel folks who, who name it and claim it and say it's always God's will. It's always God's will for you to have a lot of money. It's always God's will for you to, to be happy and, and healthy and have great relationships. <clears throat> Some people wonder why I should pray if God is sovereign. Have you ever think about that? If God is sovereign, if God is going to do what he's going to do anyway, why do I pray? Right? He's going to do what he's going to do. Does this prayer have any real effect? Let me tell you, the, abs the, the answer to this is absolutely yes. Absolutely yes. The prayer does have real effects. See, the prayer of the saints, this is the means. This is the means that God uses through which to accomplish his purposes in the world. He gives us the privilege. Through our prayers, he accomplishes his purpose in the world. But before that can happen, we need to understand how to pray. How we should pray first. See, the reason our prayers are so anemic and, and so ineffective is because we don't know how to pray. Prayer is not coming to God with a list of things we want and expecting him to unquestionably answer and give us everything we want and obey our wishes. No. Prayer begins with us orienting ourselves on God. Prayer is about God. It's not about us. 
We come before him in, in awe. We come before him in adoration. See, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, remember when he taught the Lord's Prayer? He begins it with God. It doesn't begin with, God, I want this. Think of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you see how this first line of the Lord's Prayer, it immediately takes our focus off of ourselves. It places on God. We recognize we're praying to the God of the universe, a God who is utterly different to us. He's not bound by, by space. He's not here on earth. He's in heaven. And his perspective is so much more vast than ours. I mean, just simply contemplating the existence of God, this changes us. This changes the entire spirit of our prayer. They can no longer be self-centered. If, if we're focused on who God is, they have to be God-centered prayers. But at the same time, at the same time as we, as we are contemplating this infinite, this holy, this transcendent God, we realize that this God he is our Father. He's our Father. Think about that. The God of the universe, He is our Father. He loves us with an unconditional love. Scripture tells us we are the apple of His eye. We have immediate, we have intimate access with the triune God of the universe because of Christ. And my friends, this fact alone, this should humble us. This fact alone should thrill us to no end. See, if we truly understand this relationship we had, if we truly understand the God of the universe, He is our Father, there's absolutely nothing, nothing that this fallen world can do to us that would take away our joy, that would take away our confidence in Him. And this God-centered nature of our prayers, this continues in the first petition. It says, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name. See, our first prayer has nothing to do with us. It's about God. It's about his name, that his name will be, his name represents his essence. His essence, his character should be hallowed, which means should be regarded as holy, should be regarded as sacred, should be honored, should be glorified. This is the first concern of us. It's not about us. It's about him, that he should be glorified. And this is the first, and this is really the, the overarching priority of any of our prayers, that God's name, that God himself will be considered holy. And this God-centered nature of our prayer is further extended in the next petition. Thy kingdom come. This is a prayer for the future expansion of God's kingdom. We don't want to stay the way it is. We want the fullness of God. We want the consummation. We want God's rule and to be made manifest. We want to see many people coming into the church. We want to see mighty revival. His kingdom come. We want to see God glorified. That's what we want to see. And we want every aspect of the creation, every aspect of the creation, from the flowers, the trees, even the storms, we want to see them all glorifying God and making God known. The next petition says, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's our desire not only to see God's will done, but we want to see it be done willfully, uh, joyfully by all the creatures. See, right now God's will is done, but it's done, we're resented. We don't want God's will to be done. We want to see our, our wills, the, the, the entire creation changed so we are in alignment with God, just as we would be in heaven. In heaven, God's will is done joyfully, and he's praised for it by all the inhabitants of heaven. That's what we want to see here on earth. And you see how these first petitions, how, how they completely reorient our prayers, how they change our prayers? They're God-centered. They're God-focused. They're seeking his honor. They're seeking his glory. They're seeking his will. And when we pray this way, first and foremost, we are changed. We're changed. 
And then God uses these prayers of these changed people to, to bring our alignment, our thinking in alignment with hers, with, with, with his, to make our thinking like his thinking. See, God then opens our eyes. He opens our eyes to reality. He opens our eyes to what he is doing. He opens our eyes to his plan when we, we pray this way. We see our situation completely different. We think things are horrible, but we see the reality of the prayer, prayer that, that things are, are perfect the way he wants them. We see him in a completely different life. And because of this, we pray differently. We no longer pray the things based on our temporal, fleshly desires. But we pray from an eternal, from a, from a heavenly perspective. And my friends, God answers these prayers. These are guaranteed because what we're praying is we're praying God's very will, not our will. And this is the type of prayer that, that's essential while we're waiting. We're all waiting. We're all waiting in this fallen world. It's essential that we pray this way. And the reason is because waiting is difficult. Waiting is difficult. And we are tempted. We are tempted while we're waiting to think God has forgotten me. We're tempted to thinking that I'm on my own. Uh, we're, we're all alone here. We're, we're tempted to thinking that maybe I got this wrong. Maybe this Christianity thing is, is a joke. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Christianity is a fraud. Maybe God really doesn't exist. And if he exists, he doesn't know me. He doesn't care about me. These are all the lies from the evil one. But prayer, prayer is our connection with God. It gives us the patience. It gives us the persistence to stay the, cause, the course, to remain faithful while we are waiting. So my friends, are you anxious in your waiting? Does it appear that God has forgotten you? Do your prayers feel ineffective? Pray for his name to be hallowed. Pray for his kingdom to come. Pray for his will to be done and ask him. Ask him to reveal what he is doing. When it makes no sense to you, pray that he will change your plans to be in alignment with his plans. This is our third principle for waiting on God in this passage. And we'll look at the remaining principles next week, but but I want to just tie it all together. What, what does all this mean? What is our takeaway? Well, let's tie this together. My friends, we're not home yet. That's the reality. We are not home yet. We live in this fallen world. And no matter, no matter how hard we try, no matter how hard we work, we cannot make it what we want it to be. We cannot make heaven on earth. That is the problem. We try so hard. We, we think we have the right laws. We have the right education. We will make heaven on earth. It is impossible. We cannot do it. And the problem is we were not made for this fallen world. We were made for God's perfect world. And that is why we were always going to be anxious. Why we were always going to be out of alignment. Why we're always, there's always going to be this tension in this fallen world. There will always be a waiting for things to get better. Waiting for things that only God can do that we cannot do. So while we wait for God to act, this doesn't mean we're passive. It doesn't mean we're passive in our time. Now this passage shows us how we are to be very active while we are waiting. We are to be obedient. Obedient to God's will. God's will revealed to us in his word. We are to gather together like we are doing today to, today, to worship with the saints, to worship God. And we are to devote ourselves to prayer, to God-centered prayer. My friends, may we be faithful while we are waiting. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is difficult. It is difficult while we are waiting. And Lord, we pray that you will be with us while we are waiting. Lord, help us to focus on you. Help us to see what you are doing in this world. And I pray for every single one of us here. Lord, change. I know every single one, if there are things we are waiting for, things that are bothering us, things that are concerned, health concerns, looking for jobs, looking for relationships. Lord, I pray that you will give us the understanding of what you are doing. 
and that you will give us confidence and trust. Help us to be obedient to what you have shown to us. Help us to continue to be faithful in meeting together and worshiping you. And Father, keep us focused on you in our prayer. We pray this all in Jesus' name.